Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ontario Science Advisory Table says we are not out of the woods just yet. It's calling the situation fragile and unpredictable when it comes to the fourth wave. What are the next steps to make sure that we continue heading in the right direction? Well, we'll talk about it. And according to a new survey, over 75% of Canadians hold negative views of those who are not immunized. The poll by Leger was completed on behalf of the Association of Canadian Studies Association. President Jack Jebwab is going to join us and talk about those details. And restaurant operators across Canada are struggling to find enough staff to run their operations. This labor crisis has been highly publicized by Canadian media as a labor shortage. But is it? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The latest COVID-19 modeling projections released for Ontario yesterday, uh, just days after the proof of vaccination program kicked in. Now, not expecting to hear doom and gloom because, well, we're feeling pretty good about some of the numbers, but Ontarians will likely be reminded to get vaccinated if they haven't already done so. Global's Tina Trujani has the details. For most of this past summer, the Chief Medical Officer of Health warned of a surge in cases for September, with some kids returning to in-person learning and their parents heading back to their workplaces. That hasn't come to fruition. In fact, what's been happening has been in line with the best-case scenario. Case counts have remained under 1,000. The graph of Ontario's seven-day average shows a plateau since the beginning of this month month, and hospitalizations and ICU admissions are stable. The worst-case scenario, though, was worrisome. Roughly 4,000 daily cases by now, but we're nowhere close to that. Public health measures getting some of the credit, as well as vaccination uptake. Roughly 81% of eligible Ontarians are fully immunized. Tina Trajani, Global News. So where does that get us? And uh, I'm hoping this is not going to give us a false sense of security either. Uh, to get some clarity to this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Prabhat Jha, who is the epidemiologist and a professor at Global Health with the University of Toronto. He's also a founding director of the Centre for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Let me ask you right off the top, given where we were a few months ago and given the latest projections that we're seeing here, are you pleased with where we are right now? I am pleased, and I am uh, uh, I think very much the vaccines have uh, saved our necks. And the key challenge now in Ontario is a very simple one. We still have large numbers of unvaccinated or under-vaccinated Ontarians. There's about 700,000 um, people above age 50 that still don't have their vaccines. Almost all of the hospitalizations and much of the new cases are coming from that group. And that should very much be our single focus is to make sure those 700,000 above age 50, because they're the ones of, at risk of dropping dead or going to the hospital, need to get vaccinated. When we were talking a year or so ago and, and the numbers were terrible and it looked like another lockdown and we were concerned about that and were kids going to go back to school, all of those things, the cry was, boy, if we only had a vaccine. But, you know, we, we could we could get this thing done. Are you surprised, in, given the anticipation and the angst about getting the vaccine, are you surprised that so many people seem to be resisting it? It's the, it is surprising, um, but uh, I think it's to be expected uh, in the sense that there will always be a group that really do resist. In our national study, the uh, ABC study, we found 9% of Canadians said they would not want to get vaccinated. And that's concentrated in, for example, more invisible minorities, more in Indigenous populations, more in uh, inner city new immigrants. So we have to understand the barriers to vaccination, and some of it which includes making sure that they people get paid uh, leave to go and uh, get the, the vaccine, they get time off from work. 
that the access is accessible uh, or that the, the way to get to the vaccine facilities is accessible. So we really need to double down on the efforts uh, to do so. And I commend Mayor John Tory for the efforts they're doing to find mm-hmm. the hotspots in particular parts of, for example, Toronto and try to get vaccines out to those communities. But uh, as you always know, the first uh, first um, 90 yards in a, in a 100-yard uh, race seem uh, reasonably easy. The last 10 are really hard, and this is where we have to keep pushing. I know we've seen some numbers locally in the Hamilton area. I know there's one North End area neighborhood there, 55% vaccination rate. And th- that's something you'd like to say targeted and say, look, we have to do something about that. I, I, I doubt very much these are all people that have made the decision not to. It's just maybe, maybe they haven't had the access to it. And we have to look into that, don't we? I think so. And in addition, we should be very careful that we don't have strategies that just rely on vaccines. Finally, we're moving a little bit on rapid testing, but I don't think fast enough. I'd like to see basically large numbers of rapid test um, kits available by at any pharmacy. So anyone can go and say, I'm going to buy 10 or 15. I can use them in my family or in my uh, work circle. And I trust most Canadians to say, okay, if you get a rapid test, then be a good citizen and report your results and act on it. I, I do think that. In the UK, they send rapid tests to every home and say, here, just use it. And if you're positive, follow these steps. And it seems to be, it seems to be working. So if we want to do things like protect the schools and also protect our senior homes from the Delta variant, we have already learned that our almost failed strategy on testing in the first two viral waves hopefully will pave the pave the way for now having good rapid testing available everywhere and uh, paired with vaccines that is the pathway out of the pandemic yeah i know we still have warehouses full of testing kits uh, that the federal government had ordered and and uh, have not distributed yet and i don't put it all on them we we're having turf wars here between provinces and the federal government and uh when you look at places like the uk and israel uh, they they seem to have overcome that they've developed a a national strategy we've got to step up our game here i would think doctor huge failure by the federal and provincial leadership on this Uh, we as you said there were 35 million kits procured early and we didn't use them. And But now is the time, uh, rather than casting blame on what, what in the past, we need to flood hotspots and uh, particularly the hotspots with easy to access rapid tests and trust Canadians to do the right thing, which I do. I think you know, 90% of people would, if they had a positive test, would isolate, stay at home and then tell uh, tell their doctor or report it to the public health authorities. And the 10% who might say, okay, I don't care, they wouldn't have cared anyway. But now at least they know, oh, you know, maybe I'm infected, maybe I should wear a mask. Um, so and that's the simple public health way of uh, thinking about this. Really widespread uh, rapid testing is, uh, is key. I know one of the things I'm hearing from a number of our listeners over the last couple of days is, uh, uh, you know, the numbers, well, especially for this report now, when you look at the, some of these projections, uh, they, they say the numbers have flattened. They have not gone down. Uh, so we're, we're not out of the woods yet. And, and the protocols that you've talked about here, doctor, vaccination being probably at the top of the list, but still social distancing and masking are still, I would think, very important. I think so. And my sense is, uh, optimistically, I don't think we're going to shoot up uh, a large amount. And I partly base this looking at what's happening in the UK, which is about a month ahead of us. 
Uh, and if we can keep hospitalizations low, and the key strategy there is to vaccinate the, everyone above 50 to, because there are the people getting sick, keep hospitalizations low, and we're going to have to basically live with this, uh, with this level of infection. It's not going to go down to summer of last year where we had you know, uh, 50 or uh, 60 cases. It's not going to do that. But if we can keep it at this level, keep people out of the hospital, protect the nursing homes, and have good testing available, then we'll live with the uh, the virus and um, and adapt, and life will go on as it should. What about the uh, the concern that a lot of doctors have expressed? I wanted to get your read on it too, doctor. About the fact that we're heading into the colder weather, we're going to be indoors more, and and is it inevitable then that there's going to see at least some kind of a spike there, simply because we're going to be in close quarters? If, uh, I mean, we saw this in the um, second viral wave that, uh, but if you recall, it had already started to go up by September of last year. Um, So certainly by October, it had uh, had taken hold. Uh, And that's partly because people are moving indoors. But now we've got vaccinations, and I think there's more realization of using um, masks and closed indoor spaces. So I'm, um, and we've also known that kids have been back to school for about a month. So their contribution to new infections should have already sh- been showing up in the data. And uh, so, if you put all that together, I'm reasonably hopeful that we won't get another big surge on top of our current kind of not great but not bad levels of infection that we have. One of the other things the Science Table released in their documentation, which I found interesting and I think very educational here, is uh, they suggest that uh, 1 in 10 people who get COVID-19 will experience what they call long COVID, symptoms that could last for more than 12 weeks or even maybe longer than that. Not necessarily hospitalization, but uh, talk to us about the impact that that could have on the healthcare system. It's Because it, I think some people are under the impression, well, if you get it, you go in the hospital. If you don't, you're going to be okay. I think we've got to be very careful with those kind of uh, estimates, because the truth is, you when you get some studies out early on, they tend to have dramatic uh, findings, and they get the headlines. But as more and more studies are done, they tend to find, okay, it's not quite the case. So I don't believe that number that one in 10 get long COVID. I'm waiting for more data. But in the groups that are of concern, well, that's really going to be the elderly, um, the elderly folks or the folks above age 40 or 50 that we should be focusing on. The vaccines are really effective at preventing serious disease and hospitalizations. And they are also not as good, but quite effective at preventing infection. So we, we really have to keep that message. I worry about us having confusing messages saying, well, the vaccine works, but if you get long COVID, then, you know, you've got a 10% chance of having, uh, or if you get infected, we got 10% chance of long COVID. And people say, well, why would I do all of that? So I, I think we want to be still focused saying, take the vaccine, you're going to get protection and you won't get hospitalized or drop dead and really keep that message going and expand testing. Um, We can't confuse the public with too much preliminary science, which is one of my concerns about how the communications has been for, uh, for the COVID. 
what, what are your thoughts about a third vaccine? I know that, that there's already a discussion going on about the frail and elderly, and others, those who may be more prone to, to these sorts of things, uh, and the efficacy of the vaccine. I, I don't think anybody ever guaranteed it was going to, okay, you get your two shots and you're good for the rest of your life. Uh, I mean, I'm just talking to my doctor last week about, you know, getting my flu shot. It's, it's a little early, but we're going to do that in the next couple of weeks, do that on an annual basis. Do you, do you foresee this happening with the, with the COVID vaccines too, that, that this is going to be like an annual booster shot or semi-annual, whatever the case may be? I believe so. I think it's uh, what we need to do is really now think about how we get a, a really proper adult immunization program. Uh, Ontario is reasonably good compared to other jurisdictions that we get reasonably high coverage of the flu shot. But we need to now think about an adult immunization program, just like a childhood immunization program. And how do you get everyone identified? How does OHIP send reminders like you get, for for example, for uh, for older people get for colorectal screening or women get for breast cancer screening? So we need the same kind of approach to say we're going to have a, um, an approach that does require adult vaccination. And the good news is that it does appear that you can take the flu shot and the COVID shot together, which is very sensible. And and uh, downstream, where we, uh, I hope the emphasis on boosters is to have them cover more of the new variants that are coming out. So we have to wait a bit on the science uh, and the vaccine science. But if they focus not on the rearview mirror of what are the past vaccine or past strains like Delta, but what's coming down the, the, the road. And that paired with the flu program might be the eventual new normal. You, you know, you need a shot every couple of years, but, but as you know, every 10 years, people are supposed to get their tetanus booster and every five years for younger folks, they're supposed to get, one of the other childhood vaccines boosted. So this is nothing unusual for children. It's just adults are uh, not used to this, but to some extent we have to uh, make sure that the things that have worked for us being very vaccinated in kids also work now for adults. Well, and adults tend to get wrapped up in their lives and forget about things like that and, and yeah, booster shots. And, and to take the vaccine. So. <laughs> and, and, and shingles vaccines and all sorts of other stuff. The stuff is exactly. out there. It's just a matter of, you know, remembering to do that. Are you worried about, i got a minute left here. Are you worried about the other variants? I mean, we haven't defeated the Delta variant. I mean, it's still there, but it's great to know that we're starting to plateau here. But there's talk about the MU variant and the colder weather. Is there a concern here that you may see a, a spike in some of these numbers and, and, the, and the MU variant may get a hold here? Well, it's a little bit of a concern, but the truth is the Delta variant is pretty much the Amazon of the vaccine business mm-hmm. world or the virus business world. It just dominates. And if uh, it continues to dominate uh, most new infections, then it means it's holding off the uh, the new variants. But if we're deeply concerned about new variants, the right thing to do is to focus now on a global vaccine program because the new variants aren't going to come necessarily from well-immunized Canada. They'll come from under-immunized Brazil or India or uh, South Africa or other settings. So we have to now really pivot to a global strategy. I know that President Joe Biden has done so. I wish the Canadian leadership would also now say, how is Canada going to get the world vaccinated? That's the only way to to fight off variants uh, is the variant factories are not in Canada. They're, well, to some extent, they're down in in the U.S., in Florida, in Texas, and so forth because of very low levels of vaccination. 
but uh, globally, we've got to fight the variants where they occur, which is in the developing countries. Doctor, always uh, great to uh, to have you on the program here. To, I, I know oftentimes we start talking about some of these statistics and people's eyes just glaze over, and it's uh, so good of you to spend some time with us and add some clarity to this. Thank you so much for this today. You're welcome. Take care. Dr. Prabhat Jha, who is, uh, of course, uh, part of the global health team at the University of Toronto and uh, director for the Center for Global Health Research at St. Mike's Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. To get vaccinated or to not get vaccinated, debate is uh, heating up, and uh, it's I don't know, almost at a fever pitch right now. But a new poll is suggesting the tensions between COVID-19 vaccines in Canada are getting even higher as frictions grow between those who are vaccinated and uh, those who have not and decide they don't want to. Steve Henniger's got some details. More than three-quarters of the 1,500 Canadians polled in the online Leger survey hold negative views of those who are not immunized, that they are irresponsible and selfish, a view hotly contested by the non-immunized. Some members of that group have been staging demonstrations outside hospitals and schools to protest vaccine passports and other public health measures. The survey also suggests the tensions between vaccinated and unvaccinated Canadians are on par with some of the other social, racial and cultural issues that divide the population. Steve Henniger, the Canadian Press. That report uh, by Leger was actually commissioned by the Association for Canadian Studies. Uh, the president of that association, Jack Jegwab, joins us uh, to talk about this. Jack, welcome back. Good to have you on the show again. Uh, it, over the years, as you and I have been, had discussions about this, we as Canadians have had debates about a number of things, and they get pretty heated, uh, Quebec separation, energy policies, uh, any number of different things. I, I can't remember, Jack, for at least as far back as I can remember right now, an issue that has polarized uh, people in this country like this one has. Yeah, I agree. And actually, this has been a transformational event, uh, I would suggest, for uh, Canadians in general. If you look at the uh, big events that have marked us over time, you go back to 9-11, which uh, had its own degree of uh, polarization, if you like, and, uh, and and marked us in terms of how we understood our own sense of security. In the case of uh, this particular situation with the pandemic, uh, we see a lot of divisions that emerge and... Uh, and we are working our way through them. Uh, not in a friendly fashion, though. I mean, it, it just seems as if there doesn't seem to be a middle ground. You're either for it or against it. And that's, uh, the numbers seem to indicate that it's not just a matter of, okay, I'm, I'm for the vaccines, and, and I respect your decision that you're not in favor of them. Uh, there's, there's an anger here. In other words, if you're on the other side or you talk to somebody on the other side, there's, there's, there's some animosity here. Yeah, clearly there's a fair degree of animosity in this situation where you've got the majority of the population that's vaccinated and you've got a minority that's not vaccinated. The majority of the population uh, is quite persuaded and has been persuaded that the exit for strategy for uh, getting back to some sense of normality is through vaccination. And you've got this minority, which is a diminishing minority because more and more of us are getting vaccinated, that is very resistant to the idea and uh, has not made a compelling case, I would suggest, for uh, why uh, people should not get vaccinated. And even within that group and the polling that we've done, you can see there's not a tremendous degree of solidarity. A lot of the people who are not vaccinated also hold negative views of other people who are not vaccinated. Uh, 
So, well, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting twist to this. I know that a lot of people like to just kind of clump everybody together and say, well, they're anti-vaxxers. Uh, a number of the people that aren't vaccinated, and this poll, I think, shows that, Jack, uh, maybe not anti-vaccination. They just have their own reasons. Some of them believe it for religious reasons. Others have some trepidation, whatever the case might be. Uh, but but it's, there's, there's, there's no unity. It's not a black and white issue here, is it? There's there's a, a middle ground there. And, and those a lot of those people on the middle ground haven't been vaccinated, but they're not sure. And, and haven't we seen this with some of the jurisdictions that have said okay uh, you have to have proof of vaccination right now or you can't do this this or that a lot of those people in that gray area say well okay i'll roll up my sleeve i guess it's time to get it done but the ones on the extreme other side though aren't going to do that i don't think anything can convince them could it no i don't think there's much that's going to convince them uh, you know if we go back to the polling we did about uh, eight months ago uh, about 30 percent or or upwards of that were either vaccine hesitant or, or, or anti-vax. In other words, they're saying they were not sure whether they're going to get vaccinated. That percentage has been reduced to almost 10%. So most of the people who said they were hesitant and didn't know whether they were going to get vaccinated, uh, I would say 9 in 10 of them, did get vaccinated. So that's created a lot more pressure and stress on the anti-vax group, which is smaller, uh, more vocal. You, you see them protesting and trying to rally as many supporters as they can. Uh, but I don't think that they're getting a uh, hearing from those people who are the increasing majority that are vaccinated and are very supportive of those vaccine passports and other limits that they've been persuaded that are necessary for us to find our way through this particular crisis and, and, and look for the exit door. But there's a certain sense of, of militancy to an element. And I don't want to, again, throw everybody under the, the same umbrella here. But the ones who seem to be on the extreme side, as you say, they're not just vocal. Uh, they're, they're, they're getting in your face. I mean, I heard a story the other day about some young lady who was in a, a mall and just grabbing her coffee and a, and a croissant with her mask on and and there was an anti-vax rally and they came over there they were taunting her right i mean the 10 or 15 people uh, we don't see that's I, I i don't mean to sound overly cliche-ish here but that's un-canadian we don't usually do that sort of thing but it's starting to happen with more and more uh rapidity and and it's it's a frightening exercise yeah i would think so too and i think it's a, a function of the again diminishing numbers of people are not vaccinated and the high level of resistance the reaction to the vaccine mandates passports and other policies uh, and the, and the pressure that these people are feeling that is creating this more aggressive behavior that you're seeing again from that group of anti-vaxxers, right? Not all people who are not getting vaccinated are anti-vaxxers. Some people are hesitant about getting vaccinated. Some people have medical reasons for not getting vaccinated, but you've got that core group that's, uh, very pro, becoming more and more proactive. Uh, and if you're an anti-vaxxer, you believe that others should not get vaccinated. So it's not just about yourself. It's really about discouraging vaccination in general. Uh, social media plays a role here, doesn't it, Jack, about, about spreading the truth or the, the, the myths, whichever one you, you tend to want to gravitate toward? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've had multiple conversations, as I'm sure you have. You've probably had a lot more than I have because you're, you know, uh, hosting a radio show. But I hear some of the wildest conspiracy theories, and more recently people invoking uh, the Nuremberg Code, uh, which is getting a lot of attention on social media, uh, in reference to the Nazi uh, war criminal trials, uh, which in fact will celebrate the, well, must not celebrate, rather, will mark the 75th anniversary of those tri- the verdict of those trials this Friday. And, and, and the very invoking or comparing uh, those people who are uh, resistant to getting vaccinated with Holocaust survivors and or comparing uh, contemporary health practitioners to uh, Nazi uh, doctors, quote-unquote, is, is absolutely grotesque. But you see these types of things on social media. 
I uh, yeah, I know. I, I had a response from a listener like that too that brought that very issue up and said, you know, so so Jewish people shouldn't get vaccinated. They said, well, in Israel they have a ninety one percent vaccination rate. So I don't think everybody agrees with you. But but that's out there and, and I guess what people tend to do on, on social media uh is, is gravitate to web pages that are actually gonna substantiate their point of view. I'm not so sure if they want to be educated, uh, they want their values to be reinforced. Right. They're going to look for whatever will confirm their own uh, uh, resistance to getting vaccinated, whatever story they, they pick up. So uh, I hear people quoting from uh, Facebook. I, I read the story on Facebook. It said vaccines don't work or Instagram or, you know, not to, you know, not to diminish Facebook or Instagram. There's a lot of very valuable information that, that's communicated across, you know, those medium. But, you know, people are looking for stories that reinforce their point of view. I'm just wondering where this is all going to go. As you mentioned, you, you did a study on this a couple of months ago, and the numbers uh, seem to be changing. It, it, it's not static here. And, and again, the, the polarization here, the people that are, are pro-vaccination aren't going to change. The people that are totally anti-vax are not going to change. But this middle ground is, is where, I guess, the medical profession and, and I, for a certain extent, I guess the politicians are trying to shoot for right now to get us to that 91%. If we get there... And if we get to that 91% and things start to go, does this issue go away or does the anger and, and, and the animosity that, uh, and the acrimony really that we've seen right here, does that, does that linger? My sense it'll persist because uh, the group that are anti-vax will not let up unless there is a removal of the limitations uh, that are being implemented increasingly through the vaccine passports, mandates, and so forth. Uh, I don't think that we are going to remove those limitations in the short to medium term. Uh, and, and it's not clear to me how we go about doing that because, again, we're not, uh, in terms of our uh, relationships with our neighbors, if you'd like, uh, going to be able to remove those limitations unless we see uh, similar vaccination mandates and policies uh, in other countries because we're, you know, we're still allowing people to cross our borders. We're saying they've got to be fully vaccinated. Uh, but my sense is as there's a continuation of international travel and if there are any further mutations we'll remain vigilant about some of those limitations which are really the big irritants also for a lot of the people protesting uh against vaccination because it's not just uh the issue of their perception of being forced to get vaccinated because actually they're, they're not getting forced to get vaccinated the issue is that it's the limitations uh, socially mm -hmm. and economically that are making them feel as though they're being forced to be vaccinated. Yeah, I find it interesting. People bring that up on a pretty regular basis that, you know, my, my, my human rights, my civil rights, whatever, are being infringed upon. Uh, yet I've had a number of lawyers on the program over the last number of weeks that have said, well, not really. And nobody's really challenged it because I think they really, in their heart of hearts, understand that, no, it's, it is within the government's purview to do these sorts of things. They just have a, a problem with it. But, you know, when you've got family members and, and neighbor versus neighbor in situations like this, you're, you're right. I mean, if they lifted all the restrictions next week, Jack, yeah, they, that animosity, I think, is going to hang around. In other words, you know, you what you said to me last week, I'm not going to forget that sort of thing. And this is this is something that I would think is going to have not necessarily a lasting effect, but it's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I wouldn't think it would go anytime soon. And it's something we'll need to manage. You know, in my whole province of Quebec, for example, we adopted legislation last Thursday that uh, will prohibit people from protesting in front of school. Uh, entryways and and health health institutions entryways uh, or within a 50 meter distance. So even the capacity to protest is something that in my home province we're looking at, and I think in Alberta and other provinces are going to be doing the same thing.
Isn't this really a, an extension of, of, of a, a very troubling, I think, a pattern that we've seen over the last little while of, of the way the debate has changed here? I mean, there was a time, and, and you know, you and your organization have been tracking the, 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 the feelings and the, the, the moves that Canadians make for some time now, where we could agree to disagree on something. I know that sounds really Canadian, like, okay, you, you think conservative, I think liberal, or I think NDP, or whatever the case might be. Well, we just agree to disagree. We can coexist, but, you know, we'll mark our X's important. Now, uh, if somebody has a contrary point of view, uh, they're an idiot uh, in, in many people's minds. Not only do I disagree with you, I think you're a jerk for thinking like that. And and, and sadly, we've seen that in political we've, realm. We've seen it in other realms, too. So I suppose we shouldn't really be surprised uh, to see that it's it's reared its ugly head in this debate, too. Yeah, I mean, the level of anxiety and tension and, and is, is extremely high right now. And, it, and that's not entirely surprising. You know, we're not accustomed, as I said before, to living this type of situation. It's a unique situation for for our generation uh, of, of, say, baby boomers, and, and not to mention people who are younger than the baby boom group who are encountering something that's a, a life-changing situation that we've not seen in, in any previous uh, type of global event. So it's it, there's a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety. Uh, there's mental health challenges that we're seeing reflected in a lot of the data we're collecting right now. So I don't think some of these reactions are surprising. The the the, the the paradox in this is that for the people who are vaccinated, the solution to uh, this crisis and resolving these tensions uh, is for the anti, uh, for, excuse me, for the vaccine hesitant people to get vaccinated. So uh, since the anti-vax group is absolutely adamant about not getting vaccinated, uh, there's no easy solution uh, other than to try to manage those tensions. And, and there's going to be collateral damage here, no matter what, because of the, you know, as you say, the animosity that's being developed here. Uh, and, and you have to wonder about this. I mean, we used to, for instance, you know, hold the medical profession in the highest of esteem. I mean, remember the first couple of months of this pandemic, you know, our healthcare heroes, we applauded these people when they came off shifts and said, what a, a wonderful job that you're doing. And, and, and I hope, I think, that most people still feel that way but now you've got as you just mentioned you know you've got people who are actually protesting in front of hospitals and 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 ridiculing and chiding people that are coming out of those hospitals for for doing what they're doing to save lives and uh, it's 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 not something that we I, I think expected to see but it's there it's a minority to be sure but it's still there and you know you know those the loud voices are the ones that seem to get the coverage in situations like this and it's uh, it's it's not something we're used to seeing in our in our communities for sure and certainly not something we're used to seeing uh, in a debate such as this, and uh, and the Quebec government has reacted to this clearly, and I hope that's going to at least you know deter some people from doing these sorts of things. But taking it to that degree is is uh, I think very troubling to an awful lot of us. No, I agree, and there's an interpersonal side to this which is also worth uh, mentioning. It, we did this big picture survey. What does it look like in terms of how vaccinated people look unvaccinated? What's the state of relations? Between vaccinated and unvaccinated, but when you look at this on the ground, the sort of micro-level situations, uh, discussions between friends that are vaccinated and not vaccinated, family members, co-workers, you know, on that very personal level, you're right, there is a lot of those tensions being expressed and the, and the polarization, and if you don't agree, you're, you're, you're stupid or you're an idiot, and we're, we're trying to find ways of having civil discussions about this, but the level of anxiety and tension is so high that it makes it difficult to find a, a good, thoughtful way of approaching the issues. 
And it looks like you're just uh, in, in talking to some of the experts from the, the science panel here in Ontario uh, that uh, this is going to be with us at least through the winter. Uh, and, and hopefully it's going to be in, a, in a, a dissipating situation. But, I mean, the numbers are, are flattening. That's great. But they, they figure that you know, a lot of the precautions that are in place right now are going to be with us. How do you see this happening? I mean, I, you guys are going to have your finger on the pulse. I'm sure you're going to do another survey in the next couple of weeks. Uh, do you see it getting worse before it gets better if it drags on for another four or five months? Uh, in terms of the tension, I would suspect yeah. it'll drag on and it'll express itself in varying ways. Uh, we'll have to see how far people are willing to go. Uh, we've got a forthcoming poll on whether people feel that storefronts should uh, indicate that their employees are not are, are vaccinated. In other words, you'll have a sign in front of them. There's people already doing this, or, or businesses already doing this, where they've got sort of all our all our staff is fully vaccinated. So that puts in a lot of pressure on persons in retail establishments and elsewhere who are not vaccinated. And we're already seeing a little pushback where uh, in our home province, my home province rather, Quebec, we're requiring all healthcare workers to get vaccinated by October 15th. And we're seeing a little pushback on that. So uh, that uh, type of situation, to the extent we continue to uh, go in the direction we're going in, which is find, look, using more of the sticks than the carrots to get the remaining people vaccinated will, I think, mean more tension is ahead of us in the months ahead. I know some people try to draw the comparator between this and the smoking bylaws that went into place uh, some years ago now, uh, and there was a lot of pushback about that too, especially from you know business owners that said, "Well, you're going to kill my business." You know, the, all these people right now that are smoking, they're never going to come in here again, and uh, and and that it, it was rather contentious at the time. But of course, with the passage of time, and it wasn't very much time, uh, they actually saw an increase in business, and because uh, the numbers don't lie, as you just mentioned, more than eighty percent of the people in this country are double vaccinated, and uh, you know, the, they're they're still going to go and, 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 you know, be patrons in, in these businesses. Uh, and, and that one just kind of sifted, went away after a little while when people realized, okay, maybe our worst-case scenario that we were afraid of is not going to happen. Uh, I, I don't see a tipping point here that's going to do that, except, as you say, until they finally lift all these restrictions. Uh, we're going to have to deal with this. And I'm looking forward to the survey you're going to do about, about identification for that uh, because that seems to be a very contentious issue at a couple of places here in our areas right now. And uh, I, I don't see any quick resolution to it the way things have been going no i, I don't see an obvious one either uh, and you know it's, it's it's what's interesting is when you think about this in percentage a lot of people will say hey, 85 90 percent of canadians are vaccinated it's only 10 percent are not vaccinated but 10 percent or 15 percent if you'd like represents one out of eight people so you think about it uh one out of eight friends uh, of your friends or one out of eight of your family members uh, is someone who's probably not vaccinated. I, I know very few people who don't know someone who's not vaccinated. And uh, I hear from my friends or family members about arguments that they're getting into with people who are not vaccinated, and they're very tense They're very tense in terms of the tone of the conversation. Uh, you know, in a previous poll we did, uh, 55% of Canadians said they would not let an unvaccinated person into their homes. So you could see on that, again, ground level, just how tense and how polarizing this can be uh great to shine the light on this and i want to thank you for the time today and for the great work that you guys are doing on this jack thanks so much we'll stay in touch no problem bill thank you Take care. Jack Jedwab, uh, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. Uh, lots of emails on this, as always, every time we bring up the subject. Uh, here's one, uh, just as we go to break here. It says, I am so done with those who are anti-vaxxers. Their stupidity, stubbornness, and selfishness is not only dangerous to the rest of the population and their communities, they are costing the majority of us who are responsible, community-minded folks who pay significant taxes because of the cost of looking after those self-centered slugs 
It's astronomical. My solution? Go ahead. Refuse to get vaccinated. Be shunned from normal society and give up your free health coverage. Uh, that's, that's, I think, kind of the passion that's being displayed on both sides here. And as uh, Jack mentioned with his uh, survey that was done uh, for the Association for Canadian Studies, uh, it's, uh, it's heating up. It's not getting any better. It's not dissipating uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks, especially uh, when some of these policies are going from the education process, which is what they're telling us now. Uh, you know, if you're in noncompliance, well, we're going to try to tell you why we're doing this. At some point, enforcement's going to come into play. And it's going to be interesting to see what kind of an impact that's going to have. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the hospitality industry. And uh, we've always talked about it was one of the hardest hit industries, of course, during this pandemic, especially during the lockdowns. And as they slowly but surely try to get back on their feet uh, with limited capacity, of course, uh, we are told there is a labor shortage. In other words, they can't seem to find enough staff uh, to fill some of the vacancies. Uh, some people that were working and were laid off are not coming back. Others have just left the business. Uh, but there's some speculation right now as to whether or not we're actually dealing with a labor shortage. Is it that there aren't enough people out there to fill these jobs, or is it there are a lot of people, they just don't want those jobs? It's an interesting conundrum. Uh, to try to shed some light on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Marion Joppe, who is a professor with the School of Hospitality, Food, and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you for having me again. Is this one of these situations, like so many other aspects of, of, the, of the pandemic and the lockdowns, uh, where it didn't necessarily create these problems, but what it did is shone the light on problems that already existed? Certainly it did that because the uh, whole hospitality and tourism industry has been suffering from a labor shortage well before the, the pandemic. And projections uh, out to 2023 that were done by Human Resource um, Tourism Canada uh, predicted quite a severe problem in, uh, in those next uh, 15 years. So it's just been accelerated in some ways uh, by the, the pandemic and um, is really in, in large part heightened because people uh, have found work elsewhere. Uh, the, the uh, you know, on again, off again, opening, closing of restaurants really forced a lot of people to rethink their lives. But the other uh, issue is that uh, immigration has been much lower than anticipated. And this mm. is an industry that has always relied on immigrants coming into it, um, both at the entrepreneurial level. A lot of restaurants are opened by, by immigrants, uh, as well as refugees. And, um, and then uh, frontline workers, uh, in particular, are easy jobs for uh, immigrants to hold. There's a survey, I know you see this, Professor, I just want to bring it to the attention of our listeners. Uh, it was done in 2020 by the Canadian Restaurant and Food Services Association. It found that 22% of Canadians worked in the restaurant as their first job. It's the highest of any industry. And they found that 32% of Canadians have at one point worked in the restaurant industry. Uh, so it's it's not foreign to us. We know that it's there. Uh, why are people not going back to it? Is, is there something going on there that, that, that we need to address? Well, a number of things. Uh, like I said, first of all, um, the fact that to, you know, for 22%, almost a quarter of Canadians, it's the first job they ever held. Uh, this industry is one that trains our workers. Um, but those students, because um, for the most part, that's what they are, uh, they've never had the intention 
of working there permanently. It's, you know, to pay the bills, it's to pay mm-hmm. for their education. And so it is a temporary thing. Well, uh, the number of, of students is declining over the years, uh, our young population, which is why we need to rely on immigration for population growth in this country. So that is a, a big piece of, of it. Um, and then the, the conditions have always been uh, very tenuous, uh, you know, hard work. Um, people often don't realize just how difficult it is to be a frontline worker and front-facing, so client-facing worker in, in this industry because um, it's one of the few where we talk about uh, not just that it's physically and, and uh, mentally difficult work, it's also emotionally difficult work because you're dealing with rude people and you still have to keep a smile and, and be professional about it, right? Uh, so it takes a, a toll on people and the, the benefits that they receive in terms of uh, wage and, and additional benefits were way too low. And the industry has known it for years, but because there was always a ready uh, supply of new workers coming in, um, they didn't really deal with it. And now they're kind of forced to actually face the music. And that's an interesting twist to this, because uh, I've heard that, and I guess this has actually come to fortune now. Uh, in the past, you know, if, if somebody said, look, at I, you know, to their to their supervisor, uh, look, at I can't do that. I can't work a nine-hour shift without a break. Well, if you don't like it, go ahead, walk out the door. i got 100 applications on my desk. Well, those applications aren't there anymore, are they? No, they're not. And, and uh, so restaurants um, have, you know, often resorted uh, to shutting down a couple of days a week uh, because they can't get the staff. Now, that, too, is nothing new for the industry because, if you might remember, uh, it was regionally specific, and especially in Alberta, uh, this was pre-pandemic reality as well. They couldn't get enough workers, and uh, many uh, hotels took rooms out of commission and, and restaurants shut down, uh, shortened um, days and, and uh, shortened uh, the days that they would work. So um, sort of on all levels, reducing the availability of hospitality services because they couldn't get workers. Um, and now it's coming to haunt us in Ontario, if you will. So talk to us about the working conditions. I, I just mentioned you know, somebody who's on their feet for eight or nine hours, and you figure, oh, come on, they have breaks and everything. Uh, talk to some people that are on that frontline professor, and they'll tell you a different story. That Look, at when the restaurant gets busy, uh, a lot, as you say, there's the stress of the job itself to get orders right, to get them out there in a timely fashion, uh, and we can talk about the interaction with customers in a second. But it's it's a it's a it's a tough job. I mean, you know, talk, talk to somebody who's had to stay on their feet and go back and forth between the kitchen and tables and and back and forth like this for a long period of time. And it's not like you say, oh, it's ten fifteen, it's time for my break now. Uh, you can't take a break when the tables are full and people are waiting for their food. So they say, look at, depending on the day, this can be a, a very very stressful situation. Uh, and, you know, they say, well, is it worth it financially? And I guess the answer for most of them is no, it's not. Yes, because now they have options. And, uh, you know, for me, it was one of my first jobs. So I can literally speak from experience having done that. And one of the worst things was the split shift. You, you're called in for the lunch time and, and you might be working 12 to 2. And then you're called in for the evening shift and you work, you know, 5 to 8, 8.30 kind of thing. And then you're called in for the night shift, you know, when once the bars close, 
you know, it gets busy again. And so you are working your eight hours a day, but it's spread over 15, 16 hours. And you really have very little life left uh, when you do that. And all of it is stressful because, yes, when you're called in, you'll run off your feet. So I know that's a phrase that some people just think of, oh, come on, this, it's, it's, but it is important when you talk about something like work-life balance. I mean, you've got to have some downtime uh, to, to go to a movie, to read a book, to spend some time with family, whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. But if you're only going to have a two- or three-hour break between those segmented shifts like that, there is no time for anything else. You're, you're, you're basically living to work, not working to live. Exactly. Uh, but when you're 15, 16, who else will hire you kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. So that's, that's the alternative, right? And if you are trying to pay for your, your uh, studies after high school uh, and, and you need to help from the family and they can't do it for you, well, then, then you have to work and you, you take on these jobs, right? And, and uh, so you, you're looking to get as many hours as you can. But yes, it comes at a big sacrifice. So what about what about wages? I, most, as I understand it, and I hate to you know make blanket statements, but from the knowledge I have on this, though, Professor, most of these people are minimum wage jobs, uh, and there may be except depending on the restaurant, I guess the establishment and, and the clientele, etc. But it's minimum wage, and and the justification I hear from a lot of owners about that is, yeah, well, they make it up in tips. Well, not necessarily, and and there's a, a lot of concern and actually controversy about that because I know some establishments uh, that actually pool the tips and the and the house, in other words, the manager takes a percentage of the tips too. Uh, so they're not really making it up. That's it's it's a, I think a false argument to suggest that uh, that's a way that they can actually enhance their their income as a result of this. Yes, and let's not forget if uh, it is a liquor serving establishment, uh, they they pay even less as a minimum wage because the, the labor law allows them to reduce it, and youth under eighteen is even lower than that. So it's not even minimum wage that they make. Um, and in, in a regular sort of cafe or fast food place, you don't make tips. So this notion of you'll make it up in tips is, is ridiculous in a lot of establishments. Um, it's part of the reasons why in a lot of European countries, for instance, they include the tip. There is a service charge. You mm-hmm. don't tip um, as, as the client, and you know that that person is being paid decently. And that notion of what is a living wage um, really varies by, by community. So in Ontario, for example, living wage is considered at least $22 in Toronto. Uh, it's a lot less in Hamilton, where it's only about 1645 and this going back pre-pandemic uh, to 2019 numbers. Um, but it shows you that the, the community makes a big difference as to how much you need to earn to basically have the same lifestyle. Yeah, and I don't know too many people that are waiting tables that are making $22, $23 an hour. There may be some, I'm sure, as I say, depending on the establishment itself. So so here comes the pandemic, sadly, and, and some lockdowns. Uh, some people are, are, are forced to, to leave because the restaurants have had to cut back. So a lot of these employees went on CERB. Uh, and so at least they're being able to pay the rent and things like this. But I, w- did this give them an opportunity, Professor, to say, I got a chance to look around here. I don't want to go back to that place. I mean, that, that was a hellish job. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go find something else. So when the pandemic and the lockdowns are lifted, they say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm, I'm working over here now. Absolutely. And uh, so a lot of people did take that time. And, of course, the, the CERB gave them a living wage. 
Um, so, you know, that immediate financial crisis was taken off their shoulders and allowed them the luxury to think about what they wanted. Um, some got additional uh, training, um, you know, computer skills, whatever, mm-hmm. in order to make themselves uh, better adjusted for the, the, the marketplace that's changing, and then moved in other directions. And, you know, now we're in a situation where everybody is burned out that's actually working in that industry, particularly at the supervisory and management level, because they're being called on to do the frontline work and, and fill in and they're washing dishes and, and they are, um, you know, working tables and, and busing, busing and, and, and bringing out the food to help the staff because they don't have enough workers. Uh, there are other elements to this too. I know because we've had stories, of, you know, of sexual harassment in the workplace and things of this nature. But the Stats Canada survey found that the hospitality workers have the worst job quality of any industry. Uh, they talked yeah. about low earnings, uh, the inability to take time off, no paid sick leave, uh, lack of training opportunities, no supplemental medical and dental care, these sorts of things. So I can understand uh, some of the causes of this. Uh, but in the couple of minutes we have left here, Professor, what does the industry have to do now? Do, do they look at their, themselves? about compensation for employees, uh, some of these things about sick leave and, and, and medical and dental care and things of this nature, uh, things that some people not necessarily expect but want to see from employees. Does there have to be a, a rethinking of how the industry uh, polices itself? Absolutely. They need to go uh, that route and uh, improve those working conditions. Uh, they, they also need to deal with the accusations of sexual harassment, which is quite rampant. Um, so those those working conditions uh, have to be improved. But they may also have to think in terms of uh, introducing more technology, whether that is, uh, you know, um, technology ta- tablets at the table where you order your, your food directly, it goes directly into the kitchen, and, and maybe you just have uh, somebody that comes to the table uh, presents the the day's special, but other than that, uh, there is little interaction with people. And, I mean, in places like Japan, they have robots that actually bring out the food and and are very good. So, um, you know, over time, they may very well have to consider some of those because if the labor situation doesn't improve, service is going to be impacted. Uh, quite severely and then why bother going to a restaurant because we go for the ambiance and the service quality i know there's going to be some pushback saying you know that's going to affect our bottom line but uh, i guess not having any staff on the floor is going to affect the bottom line even more isn't it it is absolutely and having to close two days a week because the the few staff that you have you need to give them breaks well that's a loss of revenue as well well, as I say, there's going to have to be some soul-searching going on in the industry. It's a very important part of the industry, and as you and I have talked about over the last number of months, Professor. And, uh, and here's hoping that there is some analysis, some self-analysis of what's going on and addressing some of these problems. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Doctor. Really, uh, we'll uh, hook up, and hopefully we'll see some positive news out of this in the next couple of months. That would be very good. Thank you so much. Take care. Dr. Mary Joppe, professor with social schools and the hospitality food administration at the University of Guelph. And, and I know, I know, I number, a number of people in the industry, and I understand the challenges of ownership and trying to run a business like that. Uh, and holding on to staff and retaining staff is very, very difficult. We all get that. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're looking for an opportunity. They've got their lifestyle, too. And I know, I know owners that are going to say, look, I'm working 20 hours a week as it is, or 20 hours a day as it is. You know, I've got to be there all the time and looking after that. It's challenging. But, 
that there's got to be some some I, I think some concession here for other people's lifestyles and the impact that that's having too. It's a very important industry, and uh, it's uh, it's been a key factor in some of the renaissance we've seen in downtown cores in many many cities, including London and Hamilton and others. So uh, here's hoping that they can find their solutions. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.